I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Wait was recorded in Indonesia and produced on the lands of the Darawal, Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This episode contains references to suicide. Listen with care. Apa? Uh, badannya? Apa namanya badannya yang sudah meninggal? Oh ya, pas isi formalin. Ini mobil yang tadi saya bawa ke Jakarta. Ini jenazinya. Ini komandan saya. Oh wow. So we're looking at the photos of the, like, the car and the dead body that you transported from the mountains down to the airport. Ini juga surat. Last time you saw my brother, he was telling you about this role he's taken on in the refugee community. He's always up to something. You look for trouble. <laughs> he looks for trouble. He's this skinny little with it, always running around on a mission. And the letter that you took. So that's the letter at the airport for the person to get sent back to Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's like permission for the body to leave Indonesia. That day he'd come straight from the airport to my place after handling dead bodies with immigration officials. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, I was properly freaked out. But like, how do you become that guy? Well, he's the type of guy you would call if you wanted to get something done. Yeah, but then how do you even start to sort that out? I know, like he's the person that doesn't have any rights himself. We don't have any rights in this country, the right to work, to marry, to study, none of that. Someone who doesn't even have rights himself, how can he deal with the bureaucracy and, you know, the sensitivity and diplomacy that comes with the corpse? This is something you would never think about unless you're here in our day-to-day reality, you know? Something's gonna happen to those dead bodies. I'm Mojgan Muarafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait a podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out and brings into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. It's about me, my friends, my family and our lives and future. There's a bunch of big powers involved in this too. What's Australia got to do with it? Indonesia, the UN. We're going to meet some people who are caught in the middle of this mess and some others who can help explain how it got to be so messy. I want answers too. I want to understand why I'm still here waiting. Australian offshore border patrol has intercepted a group of asylum seekers attempting to reach Search the mainland. Asylum seeker boat near the Indonesian coast. Asylum seekers used to board boats under the cover of darkness at this very port. The boat is the third to arrive. A boat believed to be carrying up to 200 asylum seekers has capsized the north of Christmas Island. Guarantees they won't be sent to an Indonesian detention centre. 
He still said Australia is where they all want to come. The boats have stopped and the news has gone quiet. First we convinced ourselves that there was this big problem and now we're starting to think it must have just about faded away. I came here from Iran with my family when I was about 21 years old. I've been stuck here in Indonesia for more than seven years now and I'm definitely not fading away. I'm back in Australia now, but I was in Jakarta a few years ago as a journalist. That's when we met and we've stayed in touch. When I met you, one of the first surprises for me was that you weren't interested in talking about boats whatsoever. Yeah, there's a million other things on our minds, though. I said it's dangerous. That last time I saw your brother was before COVID, when I could still travel and visit you. <laughs> so you could put this in your underwear and come there. <laughs> I wanted to meet him at the airport to record him sending the bodies home. Oh my God, I'll be shitting my pants. You don't trust me, you trust him. I told him to come to my place instead and tell us about it. But really, if we came with a recorder and microphone, wouldn't they ask us where you're fucking from? We were waiting for hours. Yeah, he finally turned up in an immigration car. I nearly passed out seeing him. Can I speak Bahasa? He arrived in this whirlwind with a story about how he'd been mediating between police and asylum seekers who had just been in a fight and said that the night before he'd also got a call from police. An Afghan woman had died in the hospital and he had to get there as soon as possible. So they explained to the relative of that person that if you want to bury the body here in this country, you can, or if you want to take them back to your home country, then you can do that as well. And this morning he reported back to the police that actually the family wants the body to be transferred back to Afghanistan. A job for Mohammed. Right. The easy formalin. The easy formalin to kalau. Oh, that's heavy stuff to interpret. <laughs> it's really dark. It is. Like, he's explaining that the process of sending the body back is actually not very good for the body and for the family themselves because they have to take out all the blood from the dead body and uh, fill it up with formalin. Isi formalin itu cuma bisa tujuh hari. Kalau lebih dari tujuh hari, jenazah itu nggak bisa lihat lagi, hancur. And once you do that, it only lasts for seven days that the body looks okay. <laughs> but then the skin is going to turn really dark, black, like you said, it's black. And if you move, if you try to move the body, the skin will be tear or the body will be just falling apart so you can't really touch it anymore. So they put the body in the coffin, they wrap it up, take pictures and videos and send to the family to make sure that this is really their, the body of their family member and it's okay, like it's not broken or anything. And then they close it, they glue around it so when it arrives to the home country, they actually can't open it because the body has been, it starts to decay. Decompose. Yeah, it's a pretty um, gruesome process. Like you don't want to see your friend in that state. Yeah. Packingnya seperti ini. Oh my god, it like looks like just a regular package that you would send to some other country. Like it's just like a regular package. Yeah, it's got the address on the front. So yeah, it looks like a oversized package. Yeah. 
pertama dari polisi, dari rumah sakit, dari emigrasi. So the difficult part of the process is all of the paperwork and getting letters from police, immigration, hospital, embassy, and also UNHCR. It's all difficult because you have to keep moving the body here and there, here and there until you get all these permissions and the letters to make sure this body can leave the country. Sampai itu izinnya keluar, ini yang bikin lama. Sebenarnya itu yang orang meninggal di sini dari emigran banyak. So I was just asking how often it happens that people ask for their bodies to be sent back home. And he's explaining that it really depends on the family and the relatives of that person. Kalau dia mampu bayar buat transfer, buat kirim jenazahnya ke negaranya kita. If they are well off and they're able to pay for the body to be transferred back to their home country, then they will do that. But if not, then they will transfer the body to Jakarta and they will do the burial in Jakarta. Kita bawa ke Jakarta pemakaman DKI. Your brother told us about a case where the family couldn't afford to pay in Afghanistan. Kenapa bu? Kenapa masih jenazahnya balik? Ya kita nggak tahu dari Erlang jenazahnya datang ke sini ada nomor telepon kamu. Tolong datang ke sini tanggung jawab. Yeah. So do you want to say? <laughs> It's so insane. So that body was returned to Indonesia. And he received a call at 2 a.m. The airport staff asking him to come and take this body back. And he's contacting the family and the family is like, where is the dead body? We didn't receive it. And he's like, the dead body is deported back to Indonesia. What do we do about it? And the formalin has been expired, so the body was starting to decompose. So he's explaining normally when they send bodies or whatever, they see dead bodies, they don't they don't get scared because it looks like a person who is sleeping is normal. But this body, when they opened it, all of them were really shocked because it looked black and it was really scary. Tuhan juga bantu si jenazah itu gak hancur. So I don't know, maybe God helped too. It wasn't broken, like it wasn't decomposed yet. And then, because of a trade embargo, the body ended up yo-yoing between Indonesia, Qatar, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. Sampai Afghanistan. Kita isi sampai empat hari lagi formalin. So the second time after immigration checked the body and they tried to lift it up, it wasn't getting broken. No, no body parts were coming off. So they asked the airport doctor to inject more formalin so that it keeps the body for a few more days, for four more days. Kirim lagi ke Afghanistan. So that they could send it back to Afghanistan again. Jenazah itu pesawatnya emang. At one point, a family of 20 people were waiting for the body at the airport in Afghanistan only to find out that the body was still in Pakistan and it could only come by car. The body finally arrives home. The family are no longer angry. They've received the body and you get a telephone call from them saying thank you so much. Being a refugee is not bad enough. Your dead body would get deported too. Like that's insane. This is these are bad stuff. I feel laughing because these are ordinary. Like this is our life now. Last time I was in Jakarta, one of the first places that you took me was Calideres. It's a district not that far from where you live. It's been so many different things to refugees over the years. So we're walking just outside Calideres, and this is a disused military compound, right? Yes. 
Yes, um, it was out of service for a couple of years, and that's the reason that the building doesn't have running water or toilets. Now they're using it for refugees temporarily. At that time, over a thousand refugees were camped in this military compound. And as we walk around the outskirts of the compound, there's a big fence that runs around the outside and the fence is covered in banners. Um, we are rejecting the existence of refugees in our neighborhood. Please um, relocate these refugees. Pretty much every direction we look, we can see banners like this. Residence, inside that residence, on every crossway, there are four banners on each side saying the same thing. With the hashtag reject... Yeah, um, we reject refugees staying in residential areas. And there's one in English just behind us as well that says, for the sake of humanity, please relocate the refugees. The shelter at Calideres is not suitable for more than a thousand people. Well, that's a nice one. <laughs> that's yeah. a nicer approach of saying, please get out of here. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's kind of a point, right? It's not suitable yeah, for I a thousand agree. people. I totally agree. This place is, is um, used to accommodate only a hundred people. And now there is more than a thousand people inside. So you can see when we go inside that there is tents around. People are still sleeping in tents, even inside that shelter in the outdoor areas. So it's just, the difference is only they're not on the street, but they're inside a complex. So there is still not a roof over the head of so many of them. Yeah. And then as we approach the entrance here, there's one last sign. And this sign is put up by the refugees. This one's from the refugees and it's their response. Do you want to read it to us, Moshkan? Yeah, it's written, we are sorry. Our home has been burned. We are seeking refuge. We are thankful and appreciated from the Indonesian government and people for tolerating us, helping us in difficulties. We will never forget your humanity and kindness. We are sorry. We are stuck in Indonesia for years. We respectfully request UNACR and related organizations to help and save our lives. Thank you. So we're just walking inside and yet yeah, there's like dozens and dozens of tents everywhere. People kind of milling around, hanging up, washing and just waiting. For nearly 20 years, refugees and asylum seekers were locked up in an immigration detention centre very close to that military compound. That was part of a deal that Australia and Indonesia had struck. We're going to come back to that next episode. In 2018... All these asylum seekers and refugees have been released from the detention centre, plus another 12 detention centres around Indonesia. Refugees aren't being locked up in Indonesia anymore. Right, but that just created a whole new set of problems. All these refugees and asylum seekers started sleeping on the streets in front of that detention centre. I mean, where else they were supposed to go? Hey, salam. Just now, refugee friends told us that today we received water in this little tiny tank uh, after three days. And these are 10 temporary toilets that are set up here. Yeah, so there's portaloos set up, 10 portaloos for over a thousand people. Are these ones locked? Yeah, they're locked. <laughs> five of them are locked. I don't know why. So actually, there's only five that people can use. Yeah, the other five have been locked. I saw a lot of familiar faces there, but I think you also recognized somebody you'd met before. Nice to see you again. Jamila. She's from Afghanistan and she has a toddler and a husband. Hi. How are you? Two years. How are you? Fine, thanks. Yeah, two years. Back in Afghanistan, she used to work at a university. 
I met them a year before when they were sleeping on the street in front of that immigration detention centre. Mm, we were there a long time, so we didn't get any support. So we go to UNHCR, in front of UNHCR. We stay there. So after that, I think the government of Indonesia, they transfer people here. and Now they're living in the military compound. So we are here, okay, we have place here, but it's not like before we were in the street. Like in one room, the small room, three families can stay here. Like in other rooms, there are four families, five families stay in one room. Yeah, they, they transfer people here, but there is no any management. There is no any management here, like just all the people come here. Now you see this place. This military compound, this was how local authorities were trying to address the problem of hundreds of homeless refugees and asylum seekers in Jakarta. Food and drinking water was being delivered by this Indonesian emergency agency called Dinas Social. But almost every day they were just saying that there will be no water for the next day. I remember being with you in Jakarta when you were sent this video. Food was running out and fights had broken out in the military compound. There were these images of this like brawl of hungry men fighting over packets of rice. Just 10 days after our visit, refugees and asylum seekers were being evicted from the military compound they've been previously moved to. We really feel for the refugees. We know they're going through a very difficult time right now. They've been through harrowing experiences. The UNHCR representative in Indonesia at the time, Thomas Vargas, turned up and gave a press conference at the site. We're trying our best and we're coordinating and collaborating with the government and other partners to do our best to meet their immediate needs while they're here in Indonesia. The situation here is difficult, and so we're trying our best to provide them with assistance to help them manage until we can look at longer-term ways where the refugees can help themselves. Where are they? That is up to refugees to be able to decide. We're trying to give them the tools to be able to take care of themselves. UNHCR tried to move everybody by offering them a one-off payment of between 80 up to $160 if those people agreed to not return to that military compound ever again. Did people accept it? Was that helpful? Some did, but hundreds of them refused the payment. Should we pay it for our rent or should we eat it? It's not enough money to find ongoing housing, so these people still didn't have anywhere to go to. They weren't moving. And now they have brought the police and as you can see the fire. Yeah, I can see there's firefighter cars, police cars, TV station, immigration detention cars, and there's police and army everywhere. I went back the next day to observe the situation. They want to kick us out from these facilities by force. We don't want to cause any problem for Indonesian people or the Indonesian government. I can see UNHCR officials here as well. Do they come and talk to you and tell you what their plans are? They do not come inside. They send their security, one of their security, to call the names. We cannot even go to outside the, this place. Yeah, you're right. Right now I'm speaking to you through the bars yeah, through the <laughs> of bar. this compound. We, we are not allowed to go outside so this place. What is our crime? Are we criminal? No. They are treating us like criminals. They are not coming inside. 
as if we are criminals and they are afraid. Their job, they say, they are humanitarian organization. They, it's their job to protect refugees, to help refugees. But you cannot help them if you don't go near them, if you don't listen to them. Just like animals calling us from behind the bars, come here, come here, just like criminals. But I just hope that at least for some of the refugees that I experienced that are very upset and that are very angry and they turn that anger to UNHCR, I just hope that we will be able to, to try and, and change their perception. The UNHCR representative in Indonesia has changed recently. Anne Maimans, the current representative, I asked her about what these guys were saying. It is not UNHCR that has to control over how many resettlement places there are. It just isn't. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, we are, we are a little uh, factory worker in this somehow on one hand, right? The sense of frustration and anger is very palpable. A lot of frustration and resentment specifically focused on UNHCR. I know. I mean, I have met refugees and asylum seekers uh, they have been very frustrated and they're not happy with UNHCR. You know, I, I'm explaining and our colleagues are explaining what the situation is and how we can carry out our work. We are informing them about the process, right? And then we are also encouraging them to try and make the best out of when they are in Indonesia, try and learn Bahasa, try and, and also make the best out of their time here. And, and I know that that sounds a bit patronizing because, of course, they want to be resettled. And then we just answer, okay, you will have to wait. It's not everybody that will be resettled. Because the problem that we have with resettlement is that there are very few places available for resettlement. There are around 80 million displaced people in the world today. 26 million of them are refugees. Less than the 1% of the refugee population in the world will be able to get resettled. And that is just a reality, and the resettlement number of places go down and down. There was a time when UNHCR was going around everywhere in the refugee community to tell us this. Everybody was really shocked and scared. People didn't know what to do, how to take it in. Not having rights in Indonesia, then how are we supposed to survive all these years of waiting? What do you think about Anne Maiman saying things like, Refugees should just get along with it and make the most of their time in Indonesia. What I really think can't go in the podcast. But really, like what I really think, I think it's bullshit because we don't have rights. So how are we going to make the best of the situation? We're not allowed to do anything. We are not accepted into the community. I even worry about speaking out and, you know, doing the things I do, saying the things I say, because I'm worried how I'll be treated next and either it's going to impact my resettlement or not. And, and because Indonesia is still being perceived as a transit country, like a country where refugees just can wait, that has led to a, a perception that the refugees should just wait and there should be no proper programs for them that look at how to use their skills, their talents, so they can contribute to the host country and the host communities that they live in. The solution to the refugee problem is to be resettled, but not all will be resettled. So it's really a, a paradox and a dilemma that we need to address urgently. 
A paradox and a dilemma. Yeah, we all know this, but who is going to solve the paradox? Even the kids here know about the paradox. As I was leaving Calideris that day as an example, there was a little boy that mistook me for a journalist and asked me the hard questions. Yeah? I want to talk something with you. Okay. Like, you guys always like coming in here and make you tired. And then like, if so many people come to have a news from us, but they are, all of them is coming in here, but there nothing happening with us. Yeah, it's difficult, right? So why are you guys coming in here? To give your voice to the world so people outside can hear your voice. Oh. Is that good? Yeah. We hope that something good happens. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Nice to meet you. What's your name? My name is Shahram. What's your name? Mojgan. Mojgan? Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. Okay, bye. You didn't say who you were. Why not? I thought about it. I thought, I thought, why didn't I tell him that I'm a refugee too, just like you? But I kind of didn't want to disappoint him because if he knew I'm a refugee, he'd be like, oh, you know. Okay, she can't do anything anyways. I felt really bad leaving there because I knew he's there, you know, and I can't do anything for him right now. It's over a year since asylum seekers were moved to that military compound and then evicted. What's going on there now, Mojgan? There are still more than 300 asylum seekers living there, so it's still three times over the capacity of that building. So now they're living there without permission, squatting? Yes, the water and power are getting cut off all the time. The risk of infections was already really high with all of that. What's it like now there with COVID? I've been taking supplies down there and I've been seeing that refugees are mostly self-organizing as much as possible, Uh, but there were two confirmed COVID cases recently. Only a few of the men are in charge of going out and like buying the necessities and coming back into the compound after hand sanitizing and, you know, making sure that they are washing up, cleaning up. They are trying to self-isolate and stay away from each other as much as possible. But how much can you do that in a building with the capacity of 100 people and then there are 300 there? The situation at Calideres, it just felt so chaotic to me. It is chaotic. Responsibility of refugees is now falling to local authorities, but they just really don't know what to do with all of us. Tapi mungkin karena kalau orangnya enggak better di sini, if this isn't their home, is that why people want to go home at the end? Bisa jadi gara-gara itu karena di sini dia transit. They also prefer to send the body back because this person is in transit here. And in, in the Middle East, like people keep going to the grave every week to pay respect to the body. So he's also explaining that we get a lot of information from people passing away in the refugee community. It can be up to six people a month. Wow. That's quite a lot, yeah? yeah? Does that seem like a high number of deaths in, I mean, there's probably 4,000 or so, I think, in the Jakarta Chisirua area, maybe more, 6,000? Yeah, that's true. That's that's a quite a high rate. 
The reason that they refer the bodies to us is first because we are running an NGO here. And so you get these calls and then you pass them on to your brother. Yes, I do that. I pass them to my brother because he's the one with the, the connections in immigration and in Ayum. And he, he also knows through our friends a few donors who he have talked to and they know this process because they have witnessed this happen before. So they are willing to pay for some of these bodies to be buried. And my mom is usually the emotional support. <laughs> like she goes with him and tries to calm the family down. Like if it's a mom that their baby has passed away in the hospital or something, then they try to help in any way they can. And also also because your brother has very fluent Bahasa mm. is why he's so good in this role. Yeah, it's quite rare for refugees to have really fluent Bahasa to be able to communicate with all of these different NGOs and organizations and these places, so he, he can do that. He's even insisted on doing this interview in Bahasa, not Farsi or English. Yes, although he can speak both of them, <laughs> but he's more comfortable with Bahasa because he was very young when we came here and now he's fully in the nation. Sebenarnya itu kita kan di sini nggak ada kerjaan. Terus mereka itu, walaupun dia beda negara, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Ethiopia, dari kemanapun, kita tuh tujuannya di sini sama. Kita semua pengungsi. That's nice. That's nice of you. I didn't know you were that nice. <laughs> My little brother. <laughs> He's explaining that, um, well, it's better we help each other out because we don't have anything else to do here. Doesn't matter from which country other people are, we are all in the same position. No matter what country, no matter if it's from Ethiopia, Afghanistan or Somalia or anywhere else, we are all in the same position. Instead of sitting at home and crying and worrying about the process, why is it taking so long, why aren't we going anywhere, it's better we help each other in any way we can. You know that thing that UNHCR taught us earlier about less than 1% of refugees around the world being resettled? What about you and your family? There's you and Mohammed and your mum and your dad. A refugee claim was accepted back in 2016, and once that happens, then you'll just have to wait. Resettlement is like this. Basically, UNHCR calls you in for an interview. They will check with you to see whether you are a match with a third country that is maybe going to accept you. Then after that, you'll just have to wait again until they call you in for another interview and then medical checkups and security checkups. It's a very long process until that person can basically get out of this country and go to the third country. Oh, Mojgan, I think I'd be so restless. I mean, what do you do when you're just caught in this in-between waiting? I've always wanted to study. I really want to become a lawyer. And while I've been here waiting, I have been preparing for it. With the help of an international refugee lawyer, I've been learning as much as I could about the law, the international law, the refugee law, and I've been reading some books to even prepare for the admission tests. Finally, at the start of 2019, we had a call from UNHCR for a resettlement interview. How did it feel when you got that call? I was so excited. I was over the moon because it was finally happening. It's March 19, 2019, and it's my first resettlement interview day. I'm on the street of UNHCR by the side door, and it's so nerve-wracking to wait here. I'm so nervous, literally shaking, and my stomach is so painful. 
this anxiety is just so bad and seeing tens and tens of people on the street like with refugees in them is just not nice at all it's not helping so yeah i just have to wait to see what happens next they told us that they're gonna go inside at 10 it's 9:16 now so i'm just gonna wait here and try to breathe and relax I'm out of the interview it wasn't an interview basically I don't know even where to start from so we went down to the basement where they have an area for counseling they sat us down there and brought all our files this thick file of papers with red writings on the front and she started explaining that we will we will never get resettled my dad got upset and he was like it's in, it's injustice and it shouldn't be the way it is now there has to be a way i don't know how to deal with my emotions now i'm empty inside of myself i am empty i'm fucked i'm broken I hate it, I hate it, I hate my fucking life. I hate it so much. I wish I could go back. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> I'm gonna call Nicole and just feeling so lost. Hi. So he just took off? He said he wants to go ban himself in front of you and That's the last thing you said. <sighs> He's not going to do it, right? I don't know. I really don't know. He was really mad. He was really upset. He was crying. Oh, Mojgan, I'm so I, sorry. I, I cannot think clearly at all. I have to call Yonisio and warn them because my dad got the, the, the benzene, the gasoline, and he's on a bike. He videoed himself. He sent it to us. And he's on the way to you next year. I need to call him immediately. You've been listening to The Wait. I'm Mojgan Marafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. Next episode. Creeping past the security guards that were falling asleep on their bellies. They were like really drunk. But... They didn't know that there was still security yeah. outside. The securities outside saw that these people are trying to run out. The securities came in with guns and everything. The Wait was written and produced by Nicole Kirby and co-hosted by me, Mojgan Marafizadeh. Michael Green is the co-writer and supervising producer. Sound design and mixing by Beck Fari. The Wait was produced in conjunction with The Guardian and first aired on their Full Story News podcast with editorial support from Miles Martignoni at The Guardian Australia. Support for this project was provided by the Walkley Public Fund and the Judith Nielsen Institute Freelance Grant for Asian Journalism. A big thank you to everyone who shared their story for this series. 
And thanks also to Tesserex, Jamromot, Trish Cameron, Andre Dow, Patrick Tumeau, and Ben Doherty. Theme music by Emma Davis. Thanks for listening to this series. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or review. There are also photos, videos, and more information on our website, theweightpodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.